There's nothing more important, is there, than just turning our attention to the Lord as we've done. I feel like the sermon's already been preached in song, but we're going to uh, continue to turn our hearts heavenwards. So can we pray and then we'll launch into what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we just thank you for the glorious, wondrous reality of who you are and of what you've done for us. We thank you for the power of the cross of Calvary. We thank you for its wonder. We thank you for its might. We thank you for its cost. We thank you for its capacity to raise us up from death to life. And we pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we turn to your word, through the power of your spirit, would you speak to our hearts, still our minds, pierce through the, the confusion and the distraction, and open the eyes of our heart to see you more clearly, that we might love you more deeply, that we might shine for you more brightly in this ever-darkening world, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Can you say Amen. All right, let's turn to the scriptures with passion and with purpose this morning. We're continuing our series looking at what is one of the most incredible portions of scripture, this letter that Paul writes to the Romans. Now, we set the scene a little. I know that many of us have been coming and going over the past few weeks. So by way of review, we started setting the scene for this book in this way talking about perhaps where it is that Paul wants us to land, to end up in this glorious revelation and recognition of the majesty, the might, and the wonder and the power of King Jesus and what he's come to accomplish. All roads, we said, lead to this place of wonder and this fresh place of surrender in light of who he is. We then last week went back to the beginning, if that's where we end, then where does Paul begin this letter? And we really unpacked this powerful proclamation as Paul begins this letter. He says in verse 15 of chapter 1, I'm eager to come to you with this mission, with this intention, with this purpose burning in my heart to preach or to proclaim the gospel. And as he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That was our theme, the power of the gospel, the priority of the gospel. That was his mission because he'd seen that power rescue and redeem his own life and turn upside down the world in which the Lord sent him into on his missionary journeys, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. So we talked about where we end and perhaps where we begin, and this morning we're going to delve down into the reality. What, what, what is the gospel then? What does it look like, and what does it do? And I don't know about you, but there's few places in this world that I like less than a dentist's chair. And I'm sorry if there's any dentists around. There was one amen there. But there's just something about entering into that room you see the padded reclining chair, you see the walls, this stark bright light shining directly into your gaze. There's something about that moment that's incredibly confronting, but it's also incredibly necessary, isn't it? 
If you come in with some sort of an issue, you don't want a dentist that just pats you on the back and sends you on your way with some growth or abscess that's going to result in sepsis and an early grave and who knows what might unfold. But you want a dentist that can sit you in the chair and do his job, even if it's delivering some confronting and revealing news and insight. And really, that's what Paul is going to do from this point through the next few chapters. He's going to give us a divine diagnosis, not just a pat on the back. She'll be right, mate. You'll be all right. Just, just continue on your merry way. He's going to say, let's sit down for a moment with this light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in that confronting and revealing moment and see what it shows us, not just about the world around us, but about the essence and the reality of who we are. So what I actually want to do, we're going to come back and if you've got a Bible, um, just bear with me. We'll test the, uh, the words people at the back here because we're going to jump around a bit, but I actually want to move forward so that we can grab what it is that Paul is wanting to conclude this analysis with. And once we grab and establish that, and that's kind of the foundation of where we're headed, we'll then go back to the beginning and see how it is that he reaches this conclusion. So Paul's giving us a divine diagnosis, and he's going to do that by dividing all of humanity into two different categories. He talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. We might say the religious and the secular, those who trust in themselves and those who put their faith and their trust in the works of their flesh, in the law, in a system. And this is his conclusion. If you're with me in Romans 3, And we'll pick it up at verse 9. It says this, What then, question mark, and, and you get used to this style as Paul goes through, he loves to ask some questions. It's like this ongoing dialogue and debate. saying, well, what do we say then? Are we Jews any better off? Is his conclusion, no, not at all. For we've already charged, we've already established, we've already made clear that all people, these two categories of people that he's going to divide humanity into, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And just in case there's any confusion as to what he's saying, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths, are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's feeling a little encouraged, a little confronted as we sit in the dentist's chair with this light of the glorious gospel? We say, no one is righteous. But just in case we, we lose sight of where he's headed, I want to just head forward again a little bit. And this will really be our focus next week. If you pop down to the second half of verse 22, because this is where he's going to land. He's saying, no one is righteous. There is no distinction. He says, verse 22 finishes, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But who's thankful? That's a comma, not a full stop. All have sinned. We are all in the same boat. 
We're all in the same state. We all have the same fundamental need. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But here we go. This is a verse to underline, to continue to remember and allow the reality of this to shape and shake who we are. But it says that all of us, each and every one, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And we're going to look next week at how that works and what that means. The free gift of salvation, the ultimate answer and provision to what we're going to talk about this morning and unpack and confrontingly embrace, which I've titled this, The Great Human Dilemma. The Great Human Dilemma. So grab your Bibles and head back then to see how it is that Paul makes this particular argument and reaches that conclusion. So that's where he's ending up. He's saying, here's what we've got to realize. If we're to discover this place of wonder and surrender and awe and majesty at what he's done, if we're to rediscover the power of the gospel, then this is the path that we need to walk upon for that revelation. You see, there is this, this challenge and this tension and there's this problem, I believe, with the gospel that is so often proclaimed, particularly in the West in our modern churches. Mike Orton, who is a, an author and a theologian and a scholar, he calls it this. He says, we've preached and we've reduced the gospel to a gospel of pragmatism. This is his words. He says, the gospel has become... How can I have a better marriage? How can I have less stress? How can I be more successful? Now, there's nothing wrong in and of themselves with any of those particular goals. But he says this, we've moved from salvation. It's, it's no longer, that the gospel is no longer God's surprising and gracious work through Christ for sinners. There's no declaration of the glory of God at work in the world, the wonder of his undeserved grace offered to sinners, the foundation of his faithful promise that endures through and encompasses all human experience, keeping us and carrying us towards his ultimate goal. Instead, it's a predictable process of self-transformation by following certain steps, procedures, formulas, and techniques. You push the button and the right soda pops out, and ultimately, we've re resulted in a God who is not worshipped. He is simply used. That's his conclusion and his analysis, and I would say there's certainly some reality and recognition that we need to have in our hearts that we've lost sight of the power of the gospel. It's, it's changed and diminished in the nature of what it really is, this glory of a God who has come to save us, you and me. So let's delve in then to this passage. It's where Romans is going to lead us to. It's the beginning of the journey to discover the power of the gospel, the turned upside down, the known world, the power of the gospel that is still able to save sinners. So verse 18, chapter 1, follow along as we go through and build on this. As I said, two different categories. He's dividing humanity into the secular and the religious, into the Gentile and the Jew. We're going to talk about the Gentile first. 
says this, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Grab this. So they are without excuse. What is it that Paul is saying? He's saying, first of all, a couple of things. There is a good and great and godly created order. There is a purpose. Before we get to Genesis 3, the fall, we've got to recognize Genesis 1. There's a a God who purposed and predestined us in his heart because he loves us. His, His desire, his the declaration of who he is, is all around us. There is this eternal creator who is reflected in his creation to the extent that he says, well, there will be nobody who will be able to stand before him on the day of judgment and say, well, yeah, it, it, was, it was never clear. Regardless of whether they'd ever clearly had the gospel, I mean, that's how our goal is to proclaim the gospel. But there's something in creation that should draw all of us, whether we know God or not, closer to him. And of course, there's various uh, apologetic arguments to, to try and point us towards the existence of God purely from the creation that we see around us. It's a fascinating study. I've got some here, but I'll resist delving and going down that particular path. There's some wonderful books that talk about how it is that the creation points us towards the creator. But we'll move on. So we have this choice. He says, and he phrases it this way. We see the evidence of a creator in the creation. And either we suppress or we embrace. And the tragedy is that as we suppress that revelation of truth, that very thing that should draw us towards him, it says we move into this place of of futility. We've... We've removed the good and glorious created order with God at the center of everything and we've instead replaced God with us. We've put ourselves in the center of his created order. And what that leads to is it leads to the worship of lesser things. So it says here, it says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and instead they worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator. Jordan Peterson, who's a Canadian psychologist, he's become a very prominent cultural and social commentator. He made this observation. He's not a believer, but he's very sympathetic to the Christian faith. He said, there's only two types of people in this world. Those who acknowledge the gods that they worship and those who do not. See, he's pointing to this reality. And in fact, we preached a message on this, I think it was the second half of last year, looking at this notion that we are, by nature, created to be worshipping people. It's not if we will worship, it's what will we give our worship to. And so Paul is trying to unpack this picture. He's saying this, this is the problem that happens. There's a good, godly, created order that's supposed to lead us into worship of him and his perfect and good plan for us. But instead... We replace God with us and we're drawn into idolatry. We're drawn into the worship of different things. 
And the end result, as he'll go and unpack, is very unpopular and unpretty. As we substitute the creator for created things, for ourselves and our own desires, we inevitably step outside of God's created order. And that manifests in various ways. But let's look at the end of his conclusion here. He says, for this reason, this is the substitution of the worship of the the creator for the created things. It says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to to nature. Verse 27, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Who's heard that, that, that particular passage preached in church recently? That's a little confronting, isn't it? That's a little in the dentist's chair, thinking what, what on earth is this supposed to reveal? We'll come back to that because that's not the only issue. Verse 28, let's see the final conclusion. Remember these two groups of people. He's talking about people who will trust in themselves. So since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's not a pretty list. And in the end, it leads to depravity and ultimately to death. So what is the point that he's trying to make? Let's make a couple of observations that I think are so important for us to grab a hold of. The first trap is to try and say, particularly with this passage from verse 26 to 28, that somehow Paul is trying to point to a certain type of sin as worse than any other sin. Can we just... Clear that misnomer. And I know we've done a horrific job in the church of of presenting and telling people, well, if you struggle with this particular sin or those type of desires, then somehow you're worse, you're less, you're more broken than anyone else. And if you're in this room and you struggle with that, I want to just clear any misnomers and say, this is the power of the gospel. People often come to me and they say, you know, how could you ever believe in a God that says, you know, this group of people are in and this group of people are out. And I say, that's not the gospel. Where did you ever hear that? Tragically, it's probably in the church and what was preached. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are all equally broken. And that's why I wanted to make it clear Paul's end result. It's not to say this group of sinners is much worse. Now, there's a scale here. There are 10. There's some fives. There's some threes. And there's, you know, you guys might scrape through if you just care. But that's not his point at all. His point is to say, there is a problem. This is confronting. We're in the dentist's chair. But we are all equally broken. We are all equally unable to walk within God's good and perfect design. And that's the whole reason that he's come and he's died. And he's bled on a cross. And he's paid the price. And his resurrection power is at work to put to death sin for us to live gloriously in his perfect plan and will. So we have done a horrible job in the church. We just have. And I apologize as a pastor and a leader if ever you have heard that from the pulpit and from other people. We're equally guilty, equally broken, but equally loved and equally in need of the grace that Christ 
offers. That's the first trap. The second trap is that we gloss over. It's uncomfortable. It's not very nice. It's not palatable. It'll probably get you arrested in our day and age. So we just gloss it over. We just won't talk about it. it it'll be okay. We'll just kind of, you know, well, we, we, you know, we, won't, we won't really deal with the issues that Scripture points us towards. So let me make that clear as well. God has, in Genesis 1, he has created a good and glorious order. His creation has a purpose. It does, for our good and for his glory. This is not because he's a controlling, demeaning God who says, well, you've got those desires and I'm you know, evil and malicious. He's saying there is a better way. There is a plan and a purpose for your life. You were purposed. You were born in the image of God. You are an image bearer. And he paid the ultimate price so that you could live as he has created you to live. And I know there's all sorts of complexities here. And I think it's one of the most ultimate. It's, it's a great tragedy and sadness in our world that the people who are held up as, as evil are the ones who say, you know what, you're actually... Your life has worth and purpose and meaning. You were purposed in the heart of your father before the beginning of time to be a beautiful little girl or a little boy. And he has a plan in your life. And I think what Paul is pointing us to here is not a group of sinners that are, that are worse, but there is a progression here. He's saying this is the inevitable conclusion. The sexuality is actually not the core issue. It's just the fruit of the core issue. The core issue is a society that's replaced God with us. We can work at the ultimate good is for us to follow our desires, some sort of a libertarian utopia. And he's saying, look where it ends up. It ends up in the corruption. It ends up in futility. It ends up in us as a society embracing things that are so far from his good and glorious intention. See, this is the point that he makes, and this is one of the most tragic phrases in this whole picture of a secular society. And it says, for that reason, in fact, it's mentioned more, one, more than once. Verse 28 to one example. And so God gave them over to their desires. God gave them over to their desires. He said, okay, if that's the path you're going down, there's a point where he says, you walk that out. And this is the saddest voice for this reason. And this is what I want us to grab a hold of. And I know this is confronting and I know it's hard, but I want you to please bear with me and hear in this the love and the intention, the purpose of the heartbeat of an eternal God. You see, we, we hold up this need to follow our own desires as the ultimate picture of freedom. That's what freedom looks like. That's the, the human, the secular humanist agenda. As libertarian, we, the only restraint we must have is no, we must be free to follow our desires. And really, it is nothing more than a thinly veiled cry for autonomy. We just want the right to decide for ourselves. It's the age-old lie that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden. And they have wrestled, humanity has wrestled with ever since. Who will be the Lord of your life? Him and his purpose and intention and what he calls good? Or me and my purpose and intention and what I call good? And here is the problem. See, we don't, we don't realize this. We don't recognize it. But the moment that we decide to be the judge, 
We place sole responsibility upon ourselves to decide what is right and wrong. With no parameters other than the imaginings and, and the desires of our heart. And from that place, we determine for ourselves purpose, meaning and worth. And so this is the inevitable outcome. That push for human autonomy narrows freedom, purpose and meaning to something within us. And ultimately, that's not a path to freedom. It is a path that enslaves us to ourselves. That's, that's what it does. It's captivity. It's called freedom, but it's actually ultimately bondage. And as a result, look at the fruit. We've become the most addicted, unhappy, and dissatisfied generation that's ever lived. And yet we continue to push. If we can just be freer, if we can just remove every boundaries, if we can just somehow be more in touch with our inner desire... And Paul is saying, it's not going to work. There is a futility of trying to rule and be the own Lord and Savior of your own life. There's a futility for the individual and there's tragedy for a society. That's what he's pointing out. It leads to ruin. It's like removing the road rules and saying, just do whatever, whatever you want on the roads. As long as you feel like it's right, just do that. I mean, it might work all right for a day or a week, but what's going to happen sooner rather than later? It's going to be chaos. Well, I want to go straight ahead. Well, I want to go... It's, it's inevitable that it leads to destruction and ultimately to death. And so I know there'll be people in this room, I know there'll be people watching online who this is particularly confronting for. I understand that. I would love to work with you, work through some of these issues. But ultimately, what I would want for each and every one of us to hear, regardless of our struggles, this is what Paul is making clear. There is a good and glorious and gracious God who has an incredible plan for your life. It's sin that's the issue. That's corrupted it. And that's the incredible news that you don't need to live in that place of futility. We can turn and repent from him. Repent, repent, turn to him and know the freedom, the true freedom that he offers. Um, I should have mentioned at the start, I know it's some touchy subjects. Adam's back this week, so all complaints. Adam at visionchurch.org.au is the email you need. He'll be very happy and gracious to deal with all of your issues this coming week. Let's move on to chapter 2. So he's, he's, pre, pre, he's presented here a very confronting picture, intentionally so. He's saying there is, there's hopelessness without Christ. Don't, go, don't buy that lie that somehow there's freedom in giving in to your own desires. It's futility, it's destruction and death. But he's not just talking about the Gentiles. He's not just talking about the secular humanists. He's talking about the religious people. So are you ready? Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But here's what you need to realize. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What he's going to go on here to unpack is the fact that sin is not just an issue out there. It's his whole point. It's an issue in here. Let's jump ahead. Verse 17. This is two issues that he has with the Jews or those who trust in, if you want to have a broader application, in the law or in religion or in a system or in their capacity to work their way towards God. 
Verse 17 says, You call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God. You know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the Lord. And you've got to hear the sarcasm here. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor of the foolish and a a teacher of the children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, this is what they're boasting in. We're so much better. We're the light to the... We've we've got the law. We're, We're righteous... He said, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Like, you're complete hypocrites while you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, grab the weight here, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, in the one sense, he's holding them to a higher account. He's saying, there is a sin issue. We've just painted that out. But that depravity is only ever meant to lead us to the mirror to see the depravity of our own soul. You think you're so much better, and yet, if anything, you're worse, because you're the ones who should know better. And yet you're boasting in your own capacity to work this out, your own capacity to to fulfill the requirements of the law. And instead, you're doing the very things that you accuse others of. So here's the question that we're going to unpack. So what then is the purpose of the law? Let's just skip ahead. Verse 19. It's the last passage. And then we'll come back and kind of bring this together. Remember, he's talking to a people here. They're they're boasting. He says, are you so sure that you were a a light in the darkness? Are Are you so sure of it? You're boasting in who you are and what you've done. Verse 19 says, now that we, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Here's the purpose. It says this, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's saying this is the entire purpose of the law. The entire purpose of the law is not so that you could boast in your works. It's not a measure of your own righteousness. It's to give you a measure of the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. It's not a moment for boasting. It's a moment for every tongue to be silenced. Every boast of the human heart to come to nothing as we sit in the dentist chair confronted by our own desperate need. And as Paul says in Galatians 6.14, we come out the other end and he says, I will only boast about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other boast. See, the problem is, isn't there, we all have these systems I don't know if you've watched any of the high-profile funerals that have happened in our nation. There seems to be many of late. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Even with some people that you know have not lived a good and righteous life. I won't mention any names. And then you watch these public celebrations of their life. And you think, who was this person? It sounds like he was a saint. It's kind of like we've got to say, well, he wasn't that bad. I mean, well, yeah. He did a few things, but, you know, we all, do a few, we, we all have this system. And that's what Paul is trying to 
address. I remember when um, our eldest first started kindergarten, and she was so excited. She's always loved school, and in the particular kindergarten class, I'm sure teachers around probably still do this to this day, but in order to kind of help the kids function in the classroom environment and to reward good behavior, they have some sort of a little behavioral reward system. So in her class, they had a, a pegboard system. Every person in the class got their own little colored peg, and if you do some good things, then you can progress up the board, and if you're not so good, then you progress down a little, not too much to upset them, but just enough so that they know not doing the right thing, and all the kids, I remember one day uh, she came home, this child of mine, and she said, Dad, I'm so excited. I said, oh, that's good, sweetie, what happened? And she said, well, everybody in the class today got assigned different jobs. You know, some people had to get you know, taken out the trash, or I'm glad I didn't get any of those jobs. She said, Dad, you won't believe it. The, the teacher assigned me the job of being the pegboard controller. <laughs> I'm the controller. So kids do good things and naughty things. I get to go, and I get to to move up the board and down the board. And I reckon it took about two days and she would give me the debrief at the end of each and every day. Dad, you wouldn't believe there was, you know, 27 kids who moved up two spaces and two down and I was here and, I mean, she had this whole system worked out. The problem was, I think it was about the second weekend of school and she had a relief teacher and she came home, unbeknownst to me, she had a relief teacher and I could see she was upset. And I said, sweetheart, what's wrong? And she said, oh, Dad, you don't understand. It was the worst day of my life. You know how dramatic the kids get? You know? The worst day. I said, goodness, what's happened? Have you been bullied? Like, has something really dramatic happened? She said, Dad, Dad, Dad you, you don't understand. We had a relief teacher. I said, well, that's, that's not bad, is it? I mean, relief teachers are good. And she said, no, 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 Dad. Here's the problem. The relief teacher, she didn't know the system. She didn't know the pegboard system. Like, how can the class function without the system? And really, this is what Paul is trying to address. And all of us, I think, fall into this so often, is we develop our own systems. Well, really, we're okay. I mean, that first half of the sermon, I get that. You know, there's sin out there. There's people doing bad things. It's obvious. There's wars. There's corruptions. There's evil. And yet, Paul is trying to pull the rug from underneath and saying, no, yeah, if that's your perspective, you're missing the entire point. Because the problem is not that the sin is out there. The problem is the sin is in here. And there's no system that's going to fix it. There's no striving. There's no struggle. There's no toil. There's no, well, I'm better than Hitler, so I'm at least a few steps better than someone on the... That, that just doesn't work. That just doesn't work. All have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, I've, I've got here to know, we can talk about the sins and in the world and some of the stuff going around, and there's, there's, there's a lot. I could preach about that for the rest of my life. But let's think for a moment of the sins in the church. I mean, let's just be a bit honest here. We have in our own country a, a royal commission that issued its final report in 2017. We have a national redress scheme that is still in operation to compensate victims of systematic abuse of children. Not within the world. That's within the church. That's within people who profess and confess the name of Christ. Is it any reason that we've seen over the last decade all of these issues come to the surface? 
there's no doubt in my mind that God is getting serious. It says in Scripture that judgment begins where? It begins with the house of the Lord. And if anybody should know better, surely it's us. Surely it's people who know the Scriptures. We should know right from wrong. And yet we are guilty as charged. And I know this is confronting. I warned you from the beginning, as my dentist said, every time I sit in the chair, he says, I promise it'll only hurt a little for the rest of your life. But there is a need for us to confront the reality and the depravity of sin. It cannot be glossed over. It is the fundamental human dilemma. Not that it's out there, that it's in here. And yet God in his gracious mercy, right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, as they fell into that trap that Paul says, so often we do in different ways. Like actually we know better. We can, we, we can do this. We can just follow our own desires. We'll become like God. We'll be our own. We'll just do this. God didn't really say no. I mean, he gave us this desire. So surely if we've got this, surely that's just a good thing to follow. We place ourselves where God needs to be. And even then, in the garden, the Lord took an innocent animal before the eyes of Adam and Eve. He killed that animal. And you can only imagine Adam and Eve as they saw the gasping final life of that innocent creature, the blood stained the soil of the ground their first experience of death as he presented these garments to cover and clothe their nakedness. As we see this scarlet thread through Scripture as Abraham brings his son to put him on the altar, as the Lord says, on this mountain, the Lord will provide. So we see the Levitical sacrificial system all pointing us towards this reality of a Savior who would come to fix this fundamental problem. This thread of redemption that unfolds until finally in glory we see the great throngs of saints who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is my desire and my hope for us this morning. A recognition of the depravity and the desperate condition of each of our hearts, but a fresh realization of the greatness and the power of his blood. We have the worship team back up there. I mentioned last week this, this book here, Great Southland Revival, written in part by one of our friends, Warwick Marsh. In fact, I mentioned it last Sunday, and he gave me a call on Sunday night. I thought, oh, did I quote his book wrong? <laughs> What's he? But um, it was completely unrelated. He's like, hey, Andrew, have you read my book? I've written this book. I said, yes, I've read it. And in fact, I even mentioned it last Sunday. So just in case he's listening in again, I thought I'd read this one little um, portion here. And this book, of course, details the, the workings of the Spirit in our nation. We mentioned a few things last week. And there's a whole chapter here. It's called Let the Distant Shores Rejoice. And it's about the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit as... It is preached and proclaimed into all the Pacific Islands. This particular chapter is called A Tongan Pentecost. And it details how there was, in the uh, early 1800s, there was 20 or 30 years of missionaries who'd come and come and had various failings in trying to bring and preach the gospel. 
And in 1834, it says, as the Second Great Awakening was resurging throughout the U.S., the Spirit all of a sudden was poured out in distant Tonga. There's a local preacher whose name was Isaiah, seems appropriate. And he was in the midst of giving a sermon on the island of Vava'u. Forgive my pronunciations if there's any Tongans in our midst. And all of a sudden, as as he was preaching, it says, the power of the Spirit fell, and it fell to such a degree that these people were moved. They drowned out the sound of the preacher, and I'm happy for that any Sunday. The Spirit moves, you just respond whatever he's doing. It says, they were so moved, they began to cry aloud for forgiveness, drowning out the voice of the preacher. Excitement spread from village to village until the whole island was stirred. School was suspended, all the kids said, amen. It says, in some places, up to six meetings a day were held. I don't even know how you fit six meetings into a day, but they were just passionate to seek the Lord. God was doing something. It says in, in one village it was recorded that the people just lay prostrate having these visions of Christ in heaven. It says they were first weeping over their sin and then shouting with joy at their deliverance. It goes on, this revival spread from that island to many of the other islands and it began a Tongan Pentecost that obviously the fruits to this day. I mean, all throughout the Pacific Islands, the gospel has taken root to such a powerful effect. I just love that picture. Visions of Christ, and they lay there. All they could do was weep over their sin and then shout for joy at their deliverance. Now, it's easy to, it's easy to fill a room. It is. You certainly don't preach messages like you've heard this morning. You avoid them at all costs. It's easy to fill a room with people. But seeing God move, that's my heart and desire and intention. And this is how I believe it comes about. First of all, with the the powerful proclamation of the gospel. Restoring the wonder of Him, a Savior. And then it comes about Not just from the preaching of the gospel, but through the hearts of a people who won't just gloss away over sin, it's too confronting, it's too hard. A people who are not hypocritical, pointing out the sins of others, but a people who in humility are willing to let the gospel do its work. That all of our lives, Luther said this, he said, all of the Christian life is repentance. And by that, he meant that there is this continual journey of turning back to him. As the Holy Spirit fell in Tonga, people were crying out with that recognition and the weight of their sin and their need for Christ. And then shouting for joy with exuberant praise at the incredible reality the power of his blood that sets us free. So we're going to finish this morning with communion. You may have noticed we haven't done that. If you've come this morning and you did not receive the elements, just raise your hand and our ushers will bring around the bread and the cup. I don't want us to rush through this moment 
want us just to close our eyes. Don't look to me. Let's try and shift our gaze and our attention away from the thoughts that are always there, the thoughts of this, that, and the other, and what's coming today and tomorrow. And Just pray, Holy Spirit, give us a clarity of heart and mind to see you afresh. King Jesus, as we come to the foot of your cross. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this to Timothy. I love these pastoral epistle letters he writes much later in life. 2 Timothy, probably the last writing that Paul ever did. He encourages Timothy, he stirs up his faith, he looks back on his life, he makes this observation in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says to Timothy, this, this saying, this truth, this recognition is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. Some translations say the greatest, the foremost. That is the reality of Paul as he walks with the Lord, as he sees revival, as he sees God do incredible things. As he encourages Timothy, this, this is what is trustworthy. This is a foundation that will endure. This is my reality and recognition. Above all other things, that I am a sinner in need of his salvation. And by his glorious grace, he came and he reached out and he rescued and redeemed me. All right, give us that opportunity as we come to the Lord's table this morning. What is that foundation that we'll build our lives upon? Will we trust in ourselves, putting us in the middle of the picture? Will we trust in the systems? Will we be okay? I can work this thing out. Or through the power of His Spirit, will He draw us this morning back to that place? Or as Paul says, <laughs> my only boast, my only boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not a place that we visit. It's the house that we dwell and live in. So we pray, Lord Jesus, as we come and remember you, would your gospel do its work, its powerful work in our hearts and our lives and in our midst. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, broke it, so this is my body broken for you. It's the price he paid. As he sweated drops of blood in the garment in the garden, Gethsemane. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, not my will but yours be done. Aren't we thankful for that? The price, the suffering, the agony. by his blood his broken body 
that we're made whole. Let's take a need in remembrance of him. As we drink from the cup, remember the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed. Cleanses us from all sin and shame. Yet as we drink this cup, this cup of covenant, we look forward. Revelation proclaims this picture of an overcoming people. And it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. The word of their testimony. We're going to unpack that in future weeks, looking at the power of His blood. The very same power that raised Christ from the dead is then at work in our hearts and our lives. It's the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take and drink in remembrance of him this morning. And if you're able, I'd love to just invite you to stand as we conclude if the Lord's ministering to you if you're kneeling by all means just stay where you are there's an opportunity this morning to receive prayer laying on of hands there's also an opportunity this morning just to come and kneel at the front just to surrender our lives it's where we began and it's where we end. As Paul will talk about in the book of Romans. This is the opportunity, the invitation, the only acceptable worship is a surrendered life, a life laid down. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you're very welcome to come forward. I'd love to introduce you to the one who will change everything. If you need a fresh touch from the Lord, if you need healing, physical healing, you need breakthrough, just come forward and receive prayer. So Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. We thank you for the power of your gospel. We thank you for its work in our hearts and our lives. May we see, Lord, the fullness of your kingdom coming and the fullness of your will being done in our lives, in our midst, in our city and beyond. We pray. It's our desire. See your kingdom come. Fresh power, fresh joy, fresh life. For you to do what you desire to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.